Professor Anil Gupta specialises in those bottom-up stories about necessity being the mother of invention and, well, what some might term those crazy people. He's editor of the Honey Bee Network Journal and likes to connect those mad inventors to harness their cultural and economic creativity for the public good. The conditions of survival have been so stressful over the years and some people, by the way they are brought up or the way they have come up in their life, can't live with them indefinitely. So when people can't sleep with the problems indefinitely, they end up solving them. And I think there are a large number of such people who solve them. Only thing is that in, in a village, rarely would you find many innovators in one village. There will be many traditional knowledge holders in one village, but not necessarily many innovators in one village. Uh, also because the society historically was not very appreciative of those who broke the ranks. It was very conformist, very compliant, very congruent in that sense at local level. And innovators are dissenters, of course. So many of these innovators uh, end up uh, isolating themselves for a while when they try to develop solution. And many times they don't even know that they are innovators. It is an outsider who sees a great merit in what they have done and slowly and slowly their innovations start coming up. From film and slumdog millionaire to fashion designers like Manish Arora, who, by the way, spoke at the conference too, India is rising and those emerging markets have never been so important. Professor Gupta... I hope that a lot of people will benefit from the technologies. And I would say that we also need to develop a lot of other incentives, uh, open access, community labs, community workshops, community tool rooms, for people to tinker with their ideas. And uh, not think that only large labs and large big labs will generate solutions, but the laboratories of life. As Dr. Mashilkar, who chairs the NIF, National Innovation Foundation, often says, in the laboratories of life, a lot of solutions are developed. So we must... Remember that uh, a resource in which poor people are rich is knowledge, values, the spirit of sharing and community. And all these resources must be built upon while developing new solutions. So surely economic conditions must improve, but so should improve the concern for those people whose economic conditions in Africa, Latin America and other parts of the world may not enable them to buy a lot of such technologies and goods, and they must also be made inclusive in the spirit of development. So Indian dream must be much more inclusive, much more embracing, uh, much more uh, communitarian if it has to be truly a developmental dream. And Professor Gupta has a secret to tell us of how that bottom-up crazy invention is often a low-tech solution to a pressing problem. Like the amphibious bike or customised signed light bulb that lasts years and the signature stopped it being stolen. And let's not forget the coffee machine that is powered by the scooter. Well, in India, it's all part of the day's crazy inventions. Mr Saidullah, who is 75-year-old, had to cross a river in flood. And if he had to take a boat, that would have required more money. He didn't have that much money. He had a cycle. But he couldn't cross the river in flood by cycle. So he thought, why couldn't I make a cycle which is like a boat, which would float on the water? So he made two floats, attached them to the cycle, made uh, flaps on the wheel, on the, uh, on the spokes. And here was a cycle which will float on the, in the water and also run on the surface. Unfortunately, he still continues to be very poor and industry has not 
taken to his idea very much. So there is a tragedy here that there's a wonderful solution, which is a great need because a large part of eastern India remains in flood, and therefore there could be a lot of scope for such cycles to be used for flood relief work, for getting medicines, for getting milk to the children, all those things. And yet he is here with his solution, and we are still there with this solution, not being able to take it very far. So these innovations, we must realize, and hundred thousands of them from 545 districts of India, innovations and tradition knowledge, haven't gone very far in terms of satisfying need of large number of people so far, possibly because of capital constraints. Our budget remained frozen for nine years. For nine years, National Innovation Foundation budget remained frozen, which means in real terms it went down. And database increased exponentially. So public policy support for this work has been very weak, I must admit. Hopefully it will improve in times to come. We are hoping, we are waiting, we are watching. Uh, and we also hope that it will become a second nature for our children in our schools. So more innovations will come about when the current generation goes out of the schools than our generation, which was made to keep quiet when elders are speaking, which was made to follow rather than lead. So the new generation of Indians and I suppose Chinese and other people and everywhere in the world, I think, uh, could be very creative and innovative. However, they should also be very compassionate. And to me, creativity, collaboration, and compassion, all the three need to be in the right proportion if we want a society which will become inclusive. So innovations for inclusive development require people not only to be creative and innovative, but also collaborative and compassionate. As one of India's 50 pioneers for change, Professor Gupta and the Honeybee Newsletter are connecting people to people and helping to engender faith in India's huge creative talent and potential. It might appear a contradiction in what I'm going to say, but it is not, because it is true that some people can overcome the inertia on their own. But if triggered and if pushed... Practically everybody can be an innovator. And the best example is that we do idea competition among children and in the villages and urban areas. So I was showing a laptop uh, just as I was talking about my presentation today. And I asked the children in the village in Bihar recently, in December, what is the problem with this design of laptop that all of you can't see it? He said, well, we should have a cube. Now, a cube or a television which is a cube and not just a flat. Imagine the companies are making flat TVs. People in rural areas are asking for cubes so that they can sit around a television, look at each other's eyes, and also see the program. This will reinforce the culture of sitting together, sitting around. Whereas in television, at homes with the flat TV, you're all looking at the wall. So the cultural aspect of the society, which is to look at each other, share their comments on what they're seeing, at the same time led to this idea of a of a four-sided television or a four-sided computer. So I think the, what was missing was a provocation. We didn't, ask, we didn't answer the solution, give the solution. We only asked the question. So if only in the educational process, you know, there was a, a teacher of a school in London, Peter Day's wife, Peter Day, who writes a business today column in BBC, walked with us on a, uh, one of these Shodhiyatras, uh, and she said, well, talk to my students in England and tell them why they can all be inventors. So I did that, about 10 minutes video. She showed it in the class. And when I came to London, the children came and gave me a book of innovations by the whole class. 
And there were oh, beautiful ideas. One of the kids, for example, in this school, at primary class, said, we have alarm clock and we have a bed. But why don't we have bed with alarm clock? Those emerging markets in India, Professor Gupta says, will be both horizontal and vertical, and he believes everybody is capable of being an inventor. That bottom-up creativity is what makes emerging markets so special, and he observes that societies that have less share more. The scientists will get new ways of solving problems, new heuristics, new ways, new, new frameworks of solving problems. As I gave example of that, that plate, all the pans that you use in your kitchen have flat bed. If only it had ribbed bottom, you will get more thermal efficiency and every household in England and for the matter in the world will be saving more energy. At least one point or percent more energy uh, will be saved because of the ribbed bottom, which will mean more heat will get transferred from the gas plate to the vessel. It is not so at the moment. Now, just because large companies couldn't think of the simple idea doesn't mean that this idea is not valuable. And that's India's strength, isn't it? That's, that's your, your honeybee network strength. That, that actually it's poor people from the grassroots up driving innovation and driving social change. Absolutely, and that's what Honeybee Network is all about. It believes in cross-pollination. It believes in acknowledging the people whose knowledge we have learned from. And it believes that whenever we add value and generate some wealth, a reasonable share must go back to the people. Art is one of those emerging markets that is growing at an incredible pace in both India and China. The Centre for India and Global Business at Judge Business School in Cambridge, Innovation in India and China Conference, invited business leaders, academics and practitioners from both countries to speak. Anurada Ghosh Mazumdar is Assistant Vice President and Indian Art Specialist at Sotheby's New York. The main reason for the soaring price in art, which then subsequent speakers who dealt with luxury markets spoke about, is is the fact that people were making these these purchases because they represented a certain lifestyle symbol to them. As you have the creation of new wealth in new places in the globe, um, you have the creation of a luxury goods market there and you have the creation of an art market there. So that's actually the most important lesson that our research shows. And as I said, China and India are not uh, emerging markets for us. They're new markets. Emerging markets could be uh, defined as the one for modern and contemporary Middle Eastern and for Turkish art. The global demand for India and Chinese art is growing, but each market is distinctly different, she says. Picasso and Braque started out their careers at the same time. Both are today respected widely as senior modern artists, and they're both shown together at the MoMA in New York. But, uh, you know, the, an anecdote that I'd heard as an artistry student was that Picasso had the better dealer. So the point was that marketing is so important to create a market. The auction houses are responding to this global demand. Average lot values are rising. So could it be that both India and China are longing for a little of their past while hurtling towards a new industrial future? And, well, how different are these two emerging markets? And you again. 
there's a big price differential between Indian and um, Chinese art already. Prices for Chinese art uh, have been much more than they have for Indian art, much stronger prices, and you know equal equal amounts of of uh, percentage growth. But the Chinese art market is much bigger, both in volume and in value. Um, I think that that's because there is a bigger demand for it, just in terms of sheer numbers in both China and also globally, because, as I said again, uh, leading Chinese artists of the day began their careers in the West in the 90s after Tiananmen Square. That made a big difference. While international buyers are coming into the Indian market only now, Chinese market was started by international buyers, which then makes a difference in your style. Price. The average lot price then in India and then China? Well, the average lot price, as I said, uh, you know, in, in, in India um, in 2007 and 2008, for a modern Indian art, the average lot value was about $67,000. At this moment, it's about $54,000. Um, in, in China, the average lot for Chinese art, the average lot value is actually uh, much, much more. It's two times more because the values are more the, and the size of the market is more. But in the end, it's the auction houses that matter. Without someone to promote the art, she says, the art itself has more limited value. Well, she would say that, wouldn't she? The biggest growth spurt occurred between 2005 and 2009. Not only the creation of new wealth, but also the easing of government regulations both played an important role in the the growth um, of the market. Just between 2005 to 2006, there was a 300% growth in, in prices, which is really, really staggering. And that's when you begin to have people looking at art as an asset class. What return is my art portfolio giving me and how is it comparing to the S&P, for instance? And then that's when a whole new breed of people enters the market. You know, you start off with collectors who are buying the art for emotional, psychological reasons. Then as the prices start creeping upward, you have the induction of a new uh, uh, group of buyers who are looking at it as an asset class. And then the prices go up even further. So with each new sort of, you know, um, wave of of new entrants, um, there's an effect on demand and then there's an effect on price. It's not just art, but demand for other luxuries too that are emerging in those Chinese and Indian marketplaces. As their income levels swell, middle-class Indian and Chinese consumers are developing a taste for expensive luxury items imported from abroad. Ashok Som is Associate Professor of Management at ESSEC. The notion of luxury has been there in India and China for a very long time, but not the way that we see it in the West. So in India and China, especially in India, Maharajas used to wear this luxury goods uh, from from the last 18th century or 17th century. And these companies like Cartier, Louis Vuitton, they used to send their products to these Maharajas. But what we're seeing now is democratization of luxury, which means that uh, people who are rich can also afford. They don't have to be necessarily Maharajas because Maharajas do not exist today anymore. But of course, if you are wealthy, if you are rich, if you have the money to spend, you can also afford these goods which are which are timeless, which are of a very good quality, which have a very good service level and uh, are long-lasting and uh, give you a um, benefit that uh, you want to identify yourself with this type of uh, 
products. Gucci, Prada, Swatch, Chanel, Ralph Lauren. The luxury market in India alone is expected to grow from 3.5 billion today to 30 billion by 2015. The survey shows that um, these products, um, they have a strategy for India and China, but they group it as emerging market strategy. And they have found out by different studies by themselves that they have to be present in these countries starting with China, then with India, then probably Russia, and then with Brazil, because these markets are the only markets today that are growing uh, in the world. And if you have to think about your bottom line, which means you have to talk to your shareholders, which means that the shareholders would ask you about profitability and growth. So if you're only profitable, that is not enough for today. So if you have to find markets which are growing... For private companies like uh, wholly owned private companies like Chanel, Hermes, it is a different story, but they also have to be present in these two countries because their competitors are also present in these countries. So this is a strange mix of uh, compulsion and also uh, a way to move forward in the growth process of these companies where uh, they originated from in Europe, but Europe is, is not growing as, as much as it should be. The question is now... Where are the new markets? The differences between the Indian and Chinese luxury markets are significant. India has the fastest growing market for upscale consumer products. A shock. These two countries are very different and um, very different in their uniqueness, and that is what uh, makes them different. So we cannot club these two countries or other countries as emerging market for the luxury industry. Specifically, this is what I try to study. The question being, um, a very important uh, CEO of one of these companies uh, spoke uh, to me about, uh, uh, about a way which explains this issue. He said that it is very easy to enter the Chinese market, but very difficult to continue in this market. Likewise, it is very difficult to enter the Indian market, but once you enter the Indian market, it is very difficult to stay on. Which means that, yes, it is difficult to enter the Indian market because of all the necessary uh, difficulties that we have created for ourselves. But the Indian uh, consumer is, is um, and especially the wealthy and the educated consumer who travels abroad and who are knowledgeable, and we, as you know, India is a knowledge uh, source and a knowledge country in terms of uh, different service sectors. They understand and they are, can be educated to this sector very easily, which might not be true as that of China. But on the other hand, China, the government has made it sure that you can enter very easily. But the question being that, how do you do, what do you do after that? Because as you see in China, the wealth is concentrated in certain cities, which is not possibly the case as in India. So how much exactly is that global luxury market worth? And how can you prepare your company to capture a little of it for yourself? Ashok was nominated as one of the 200 outstanding intellectuals of the 21st century and an author of a number of books, including Organisation Redesign and Innovation HRM and International Management, Managing the Global Corporation. Ashok again. We at ESSEC Business School have a luxury brand management program which teaches a one-year MBA program to educate uh, participants, uh, giving them an MBA degree for only luxury management. And also LVMH uh, has sponsored a chair to educate people in the luxury industry in our school. What I did was, which is unique and I think the, number, I think the first time in the world, is I have combined this expertise with the market, which is India, which I know best. Uh, 
Of course, I couldn't have done with China, but India, I, I did this collaboration with IIM Ahmedabad, of which I am an alumnus. And what I did was I brought this experience from France, and I did a executive program for people who want to be in this industry but do not know about this industry. So we do a one-week project or a one-week module in France and one-week module in India where we discuss about luxury in two different contexts. And then we can generalize it into emerging market uh, context. If we're talking about emerging markets in India and China and innovation, you are indeed the author of organization and redesign and innovation, um, international management, managing the global corporation. You've been nominated as one of the 2,000 most outstanding intellects of the 21st century um, in business and management. What's your view on the markets in India and China? Are they going to become the most important, the most precious, the most emerging markets to be in? At present, these are the only two markets that can give us the necessary boost to revive the economy. Why is this so? Because The global economy, you mean? Yeah, the global economy. Why this is so? Because these two markets have a consumer pool, which is the highest, if you, if you total, if you pool the two consumers, uh, the, the, the number of consumers in these two countries, this is uh, by far greater than the whole of the U.S. and also by far the greater than the whole of Europe. If you pool the whole consumers of U.S. and Europe, it is probably equivalent to that of these two countries. So basically what we're saying is in the next 15 years, where are our consumers? We can't rely on Japan because uh, Japan, the average age is around 45 years now. So in the next 15 years, most of the people would be retired. Europe has a declining population, and the U.S. has a population which is not as young as that of these two countries. So if I have to plan my product strategy, if I have to plan not only the luxury company uh, per se, but any products, for example, automobile, for example, service sector, for example, uh, sports sector, for example, uh, medication sector, medicine sector, I have to see where are my consumers. And these two countries offer me a 600 million consumer for the next 20 years. So of course, I have to think of these two countries as one of my major markets. Well, that last emerging market for both India and China is the world of film. Indian films have always enjoyed huge global audiences, but Bollywood and Hollywood are now working together to capture those emerging markets at home and abroad. The Indian diaspora is part of those emerging audiences too. Patrick von Sychowski is Chief Operating Officer for AdLab's Digital Cinema. There's a huge international audience for Indian films, for Bollywood films, but they tend to fall into two categories. There are the art house films, uh, the Mira Nair type of films, which tend to be seen by Westerners um, in the art house cinemas, but they don't uh, break out into the multiplexes very often. And then you have the more typical Indian Bollywood, the so-called masala films, but they tend to play to the um, Indian diaspora, the NRIs, uh, living across the world. And they do have a huge following, um, so much so that in the United States, the uh, second biggest uh, language after English in terms of annual box office takings is Hindi rather than uh, Japanese or French or Spanish, which you might think. So uh, there is a big audience for um, Indian films out there, but they tend to be quite distinct. And every once in a while, or we do have the occasional crossover film like Slumdog Millionaires, which is a bit of a mutt of a film because it has mixed parentage, a bit of British, a uh, bit of Indian, a uh, bit of Hollywood. So what do the experts say about Bollywood's success? 
just what gave rise to it all. Patrick again. Where India is today is where Hollywood in the United States was in the 1930s and 40s, where um, we didn't have internet, we didn't have DVDs and television, we only had radio as an alternative. So if people wanted to escape the, the grim realities of the Depression, they went to the cinema. And same in India, where um, for a large part of the rural population, cinema is the only escape that they can afford on a regular basis. And um, which is why um, there really are strong parallels between because in India, even today, the DVD market, the Internet market is very much nascent. So it is a very much a cinema driven industry where 70 percent of a film's revenue will come from the box office, whereas in a place like Hollywood, they earn most of their money from DVDs and satellite television and so on. And, of course, there's that other factor, the Internet. And, and in China, there's Internet connection, and so films can be delivered through the Internet. And, and in India, you said that market is still small just simply because the Internet connections aren't good. Yes, and I think we're never going to see um, Internet connections and broadband connections in India rising significantly enough for it to be a massive delivery platform for movies the way it can be here in the West. But what we will see is probably a leapfrogging with the uh, mobile phone revolution, which is already um, so significant. There are more than 300 million Indians with uh, mobile phones. It's not a upper class or middle class phenomenon. It's the um, the man selling uh, vegetables on street corner. He has a mobile phone. And if you can deliver not entire movies, but song clips, song and dance clips, and little snippets of films, I think that's going to be a much more powerful and profit-making distribution platform for film and content producers than through broadband fixed-line internet. And can Slumdog Millionaire have anything in common with Crouching Tiger and Hidden Dragon? Patrick can fill all of those connections in for you and explain just how and why the emerging film industry is going to be so important in the future in both India and China. We are seeing um, this uh, cross-fertilisation. You are seeing influences heading both ways. Um, in Bollywood, it is getting more corporate um, because of the Hollywood studios moving in, because of IPOs, uh, because of media companies started starting to form in what was previously a very fragmented, very uh, star-driven system, which was not even recognised as an industry by the Indian government until 2001. So it's gone through a tremendous change in a short amount of time. Now, Hollywood studios are looking at this market and seeing an opportunity because their films account for just 5 to 10% of box office. Indians in India prefer to watch domestic films. So if Hollywood wants to have a slice of that pie, they have to make those Indian films for domestic audiences. Now, that is not unique to India, um, Hollywood studios like Warner Brothers are active everywhere in China, in Germany, in Spain, and India is a logical extension of that. And if you look at Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, again, it was not a typical Chinese film. It was produced by Sony Pictures. It had some uh, Japanese actors in it. It was a Taiwanese Western educated director. And the scriptwriter was somebody with a very un-Chinese name of James Shamos. So I think it's inevitable that we're going to see more and more of the meeting of the two cultures in trying to learn the best from each other and for expanding and for growing. The economic downturn is good for the Cinnabon business. People want escapism at an affordable price, and that fits in with Bollywood's plan to increase its global market share of the film industry. It might just be that East can teach new tricks to the West and that Hollywood has to hold on to its cinema seats to keep up. 
Bollywood can never supplant Hollywood, but be afraid. Be very afraid. Patrick again. It would be a tall order for, to think that, that Bollywood is going to replace Hollywood, but I think it'll be a very, very strong number two. And it is already in a lot of markets, which we don't think about. For example, in the Middle East, where uh, it's a, pretty much a level playing field between Hollywood films and Bollywood films. They are equally popular at the multiplexes in um, places like Dubai and Kuwait and so on. So already there, um, we're seeing more of a strong challenge from Bollywood in countries in Africa and China too. Um, there isn't this massive domination that Hollywood has necessarily in Europe um, and the Western Hemisphere. So I think that Bollywood will become more pronounced in the future. We're already seeing influences in terms of directors picking up uh, the Indian vision and incorporating to them films like Moulin Rouge and Titanic are very, very much influenced by the whole Bollywood aesthetic and the Bollywood way of uh, telling uh, stories and incorporating song and dance into it. So, yes, we will see more of that, but I don't think that Bollywood will be overtaking Hollywood just yet. All in all, the Centre for India and Global Business at Judge Business School in Cambridge Innovation in India and China, How to Create Value from Emerging Markets Conference was a box office success. Anurada Ghosh Mazumda and Ashok Som again. It's absolutely fantastic and, you know, just the sheer brain power in that conference room, it's, it's you know, absolutely overwhelming. And so many new ideas are being discussed, debated, put to the test. Um, and I think it'll be really great to see five years from now or ten years from now how much truth, uh, you know, uh, the, these ideas bear out and, you know, what works and what doesn't. I think this is a great conference and this is the first time I've seen academicians, practitioners and uh, people from the industry come together and speak speak very collegially. Usually we academicians go to academic conferences, practitioners go to practitioners conferences, and we don't gel. But I have found this this methodology very exciting, and I think that we can learn from each other very well in this type of format. And I'm happy that I came here all the way from Auckland after a 30-hour flight and going back another 30-hour for one and a half days because I learned a lot, and I found that it is a, a major... Uh, a productive issue where people from different spheres can learn from different ways in the same conference. 